Wow. Thank you. Um, when God spoke to my wife and I to leave the South, that understand that all tea is intended to be sweetened, <laughs> and that most food is brown because it's fried, to move up here to the land of unsweetened tea. It was, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting transition to make, even at the age that we were. I, I transitioned to church, uh, moved up here uh, to serve Pastor Brett, now Bishop Brett, and it has been an amazing 20 years of blessing. Um, when, when we came here, uh, we were uh, meeting at a rented facility. Uh, our church was maybe 500 people. Um, we had one other congregation uh, that was downtown. And we've just watched, I've been, the, the great privilege of my life is having been here during this 20 years and watching how God has blown, breathed, and expanded this house. And so let me turn around and thank you for the opportunity to serve during that period of time. So God bless you. Thank you very much. Turn your Bible to the book of Matthew. Each year, as was intimated on the video, I've had the privilege of standing in this pulpit and giving, if you wish, a prophetic preview of what God was saying for this next season of time. Now, let me hasten to say that this is not a word that has a statute of limitations or an expiration date of December 31st at midnight. So please don't come looking for me with stones if all of this doesn't happen, all right? Um, but it's a general sense of what I sense and as I listen to what I believe are some of the other credible prophetic voices around the, around the globe, to sort of check that as to are we all sort of hearing the same thing together. And um, by doing that, I've had the privilege of, of watching God perform his word. One of the great joys of my life being a prophetic guy is when people come up and say, you know, God did exactly exactly what you said. No, God performed his word. That's what's exciting about being in revelational and prophetic ministry. And, you know, God spoke a word to me of, of prologue. He said, you need to go back and talk for a moment about what is setting up this moment. And I had to look that word up because one of the things you don't want to do with all these smart people that stand in this pulpit is misuse language. Uh, my wife will correct me on the car. She said, you use that word wrong. But the word prologue is the word God gave me. And a prologue is an event that leads to another event. Prologue, an event that leads to another event. And over these past three years, we've been in a prologue of what God is now about to release, I believe, not only for you, for this church, but for the larger body of Christ. But that prologue has been a challenge. God spoke to me in February of 2020, and many of you were in a leaders meeting here, and I spoke that God was about to use what was then this unknown virus but God is about to drag his plow through the church and through the nations. He's about to open things up that the seeds of revival might have a place to fall. 
And we've seen the furrows. But yet many of us have yet to see the fruit of the seeds of that revival. 20, 21, 22, we were thinking that somehow we would come out of this virus. But how many of you experienced, if you wish, as much death, delay, and loss in 22 as you did in 20? But maybe in a slightly different way. We've all been affected, yes, by a virus. But I can say from my own personal testimony is that the sense of loss didn't just stop with if you wish, the movement of a virus. 2020, COVID. 2021, my, my, my dad died. 2022, just a few weeks ago, I buried my mother. And so we've been in, I've been in an extended season of loss. And yet, I hang on to passages like Isaiah 9. It says, the people walking in darkness have done what? They've seen something they've seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned and you've enlarged the nation increased their joy and they rejoice before you as people rejoice at the what harvest saints hear me we are standing on the precipice and the beginning of a historic global outpouring of God. And that sounds like an awfully big statement to make. But ladies and gentlemen, God has chosen you and me and this generation to see history. I want you to let that just sink in for a moment. And we're standing here. And yet, after three years of drought, famine, and death. You know, there was another three-year period of time that was very similar. And a prophet went to the top of a mountain and he began to bend down, he began to pray. And he saw something. He saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. It started small at first, but then it got bigger. And then it says, I hear the sound of a heavy rain. Let me tell you, three years, there was no hydration on the land. There was famine. There was death. And let me say to you that myself and others like me are hearing the sound of a heavy rain. We're hearing something. Simeon, We've just got coming out of the Advent season, Luke chapter 2. We look at Simeon's CV, and it simply said he was, the Holy Spirit was upon him. Moved, he, he was there in the temple waiting, and it says he had heard something. He had a promise that he would not die until he had seen the consolation of Israel. He would not die. Until he had seen revival in the flesh, Jesus Christ. My wife and I have had the privilege of ministering at a prophetic conference for many, many years. And two of the men that were at this conference in this past year 
Emmanuel Canastracy and Dr. Bill Hammond. Don't worry about it. You wouldn't know who these people are. Emmanuel Canastracy was a young man that back in the 1950s, he stood in the, the driveway of William Branham, one of the greatest revivalists of the 20th century. And he wouldn't leave. Stayed there for three days until Branham let him in the house. And he traveled with William Branham for years. The way he met his wife as a teenager, he laid hands on her and healed her from leukemia. I guess you have to marry somebody when they do that. <laughs> and I remember last year, the, the year prior, I told my wife, it said, Emmanuel has cancer. And sure enough, 30 days after that particular conference, this would have been in 2021, he was diagnosed. He's 90 years old. Medical community don't aggressively treat 90-year-olds with cancer. In 2022, he showed up cancer-free. Now, as remarkable as that testimony is and the power of God that flows through this man's life, he got up and he testified. He said, God told me that he would preserve my life until I saw with my own eyes the next revival. Dr. Bill Hammond, arguably the father of the modern prophetic movement, was also ministering at that conference. He got up. This man is in his late 80s and not in great health. He got up and God had told him exactly the same thing. These two fathers, these two saints, that God has preserved their life just like Simeon. That they would not expire until they had seen something with their own eyes. Hear me, saints. We stand here today on the precipice of something absolutely glorious and historic. But you might say, I don't see it. I'm still married to the same fool. I'm not sure if my children are the Antichrist. My employer is Pharaoh. The economy, oh my God. I'm not seeing it with my own natural eyes. Where is my revival then, Pastor? Elisha told some kings who had found themselves in an impossible situation where they had run out of water for their armies and their livestock. And he said, dig ditches in this valley. Dig ditches. I know you're dying. He says, but you will see neither wind nor rain, yet in the morning this valley will be full of ditches. Let me just tell you. What was the prophet saying? Don't use your natural eyes to assess what I'm about to do supernaturally. Because if you're only looking here, you're not looking correctly. Some of you, in the midst of your valley, whatever it is, God is saying, are you willing to move from just anticipation to preparation? Are you willing to do something with what you're hearing? Wow. Stand with me.
We have a tradition in this church standing for the reading of Scripture. Matthew, the 25th chapter, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any of oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up, trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they said, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, open the door. He replied, tell you the truth, I don't even know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. God bless the reading of your word. You may be seated. I have a very uncomfortable relationship with oil. Some years ago, my wife and I had a Vista Cruiser. Now, if you don't know what a Vista Cruiser was, you obviously are a Miller Z. But as a full-blown boomer, we were the 70s show, the Vista Cruiser. And a light came on the dash on the Vista Cruiser. It was a red light. I thought, well, it's Christmas. That's really nice. And so being young, dumb, et cetera, and so forth, I just ignored it until on the way to church one day, the engine made a funny noise like a wildebeest about to give birth, and the car just stopped. And I kind of got off to the side of the road somehow, and we had a mechanic in the church, had the car towed to the mechanic, and I'll never forget going and saying, well, what's wrong with the Vista Cruiser? And he handed me my oil. Now, you're not supposed to be able to hand somebody your oil from your car. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I just thought that miracles happened. You never had to check it. You never had to add anything to it. And so what was finally left, I could hold in my hand. It's not how it's supposed to work. Early in our marriage, we had oil heat in our home. Don't recommend it. And my wife and I were just... Well, she wasn't, but I was just young, dumb, and broke. And so we would run out of oil to heat our home. You could smell it because the last vestiges of the oil, you can kind of, and then all of a sudden you're cold and it's like, what's happened? Well, they would only deliver oil 100 gallons at a time. That was the least they would deliver. And that was all we could afford at once. And so whether it was the oil in my car that I thought just supernaturally reproduced itself or the oil in our heating tank, which I thought just supernaturally reproduced itself, the reality is when I neglected both, hear me, we either wound up, our movement stopped, or we wound up cold because I took oil for granted. So... What about your oil this morning? 
If we go back to our passage, this parable, we find that both groups were uniquely qualified to meet the bridegroom. Virgins, set apart. Like the church, the ecclesia, set apart. They were uniquely qualified. They both were in the right place at the right time. They both were operating with the right information and the right revelation. He's coming. We've heard the word. And yet it says what's interesting is that they both got weary in the wait and they fell asleep. Interesting. Now, obviously both groups qualified, identified, the right revelation, yet they still slept. The bridegroom shows up. And yet only one group, only five of the ten, were able to go in. Why? Because they had wisely brought enough oil for their lamps that at the time the bridegroom showed up, at the time that the thing that we've been waiting for our entire lives, we've come prepared. There's a preparation. There's not just anticipation. There's not just expectation. But there's a preparation that we've made. My goodness. And for us right now, it begs some questions. Some expectations of then what does revival or awakening look like? Pentecost, the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit coming, it says, is a violent wind. It's tongues of fire. Now, there was no precedent for this. There was no recordation in the law or the prophets. There was no oral tradition that this is how heaven was going to invade earth at this feast. They'd never seen it before. And we see even there at Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, we see two groups. We see one group that God had fallen on. They began to worship in languages that they didn't understand. And we see another group making fun of group number one. Ah, they're drunk. Interesting. Here they are in the same place at the same time under this anointing and this outpouring. Some got it and some didn't. Hear me. One of the things that will mark this revival are those that get it and those that don't. And even from church to church, even, quite frankly, those sitting on the same pew, this one will get it and this one won't. Very interesting. And yet, here is Pentecost. Some making fun of others. We look at our contemporary history. The charismatic renewal going back into the 1950s and 60s. God coming through the Catholic Church. And yes, there are Catholics that are going to heaven. Hope that doesn't mess you up. And then God coming through the denominational historical church. Dennis Bennett, an Anglican, actually coined the phrase charismatic when he said, gentlemen, we are charismatic. 
This is in the early 1960s. And here, God is trying to pour out his spirit within traditional structures, Methodism, the Lutherans, the Baptists, et cetera, and so forth. And yet, guess what happened? Many of these structures said, we've gone as far as we're going. This is our liturgy. This is our understanding of the Holy Ghost. We don't need this. And guess what? God just said, fine. And if you look at what's happened to many historical denominations, that have been racked and wrecked by liberal theology. Missiologists are saying that at the rate of decline in many of these traditional denominational structures, that they will cease to exist in just a few years. Why? Because they rejected the oil when it was offered to them. Got all we need. Okay. Amazing. In the mid-1990s, my wife and myself were pastoring a church in North Carolina. Ken and Joni Whitaker were there. Hannah Beth was there. She was Hannah Beth in uh, HB. She was this instead of this, but that's all right. And God came and met us, and it was, it was an ecclesiastical mess. People were running and laughing and falling down, and, and, and it, was, it was just like, and some people were saying, this can't be God. We've never seen anything like this before. You need to shut this down. Because it wasn't in their frame of reference. It wasn't in their historical database. They didn't like being on the floor. Huh. Wow. But what about us? Oh, we're good. We're ready. Really? Leonard Ravenhill, and I think this was his quotation, he said, one of my greatest concerns is that the Pentecostal church thinks they know so much about God that they stand in danger of missing the next move of God. You see, we think we're good because we believe in non-spiritual gifts, and we have, uh, uh, what is it called? Um, the, the intake for new members, life of the spirit. I wrote it. I forgot it. So what happens? It's just okay. But the Pentecostals, we're at the greatest risk of missing this next outpouring of God because of what we think we know. And our definitions are mostly inadequate and inaccurate. Why? Because there's no clear historical model for how God's about to move, only those things that we have constructed in our mind as to what we think this has to look like. I was talking to my financial guy on the phone, and like many of you who have, you know, $14 in your 401 accounts, <laughs> that's now 14 cents. And he was trying to encourage me. Well, you know, it's not timing, it's time in the market. You know, I just, I just smack you. He said, it's okay because all of the historical models that we have is that, you know, the, 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 what is it? The bulls follow the bears in so many months. And I said, what if this isn't a historical model? What if this is something else? In a largely narcissistic culture, which has created this narcissistic gospel. It's all about me. We package revivals as to how it benefits me. You know, the question of life 
It's not why we do a thing, but how we do a thing, but for whom we do a thing. You know, many times we think it's the quantity. We think it's the doing. We think it's working the list. It's not. It's the motivation for whom are we doing it. And for those who are primarily engaged in church labor and activity, it's so easy to say, well, you know, I'm doing it for the church and the advance of the... You're doing it for your own ego. At best, your motivation is mixed. What if this next outpouring of God doesn't personally benefit us? As a matter of fact, what if it cost us? Would we still call it revival? We look at the early church. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Oh man, they had it going on. They were giving it away. Miracles, signs and wonders and teaching and, and the fellowship and prayer. It was an amazing time. Yeah, against a backdrop of incredible persecution. Arguably the greatest revival in human history is happening right now. Numerically at least. In mainland China. And when those folks come to the altar, it's not a matter of, you know, I'm going to get more money and my body is not going to hurt and I'm going to be happier. And it's a good day that I'm not going to go to hell. No, 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 no. These disciples come to the front understanding what that profession of faith might mean for them. Their houses bulldozed, separation, being jailed, and death. There's a depth of discipleship because they understand when they come and give their life to Christ, it might cost them everything. And yet that's the greatest revival we've ever seen happening right now in the midst of some of the most horrendous human rights and persecution on the planet. Happening at the same time. My goodness. So what do we do in the delay? He's coming. I've been hearing this my whole life. This has been reverberating and echoing through the body of Christ ever since the beginning. They all fell asleep. And saints, the church needs to wake up. Wake up. You say, man, I'm, we're awake. We're awake. We're, we're busy. We're busy. We, we got meetings. We got small group. We're going to conferences. We're, we're doing the stuff. We're busy, 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 busy. But we're so busy doing church that we barely have time to be the church. And I'm not saying don't go to small group. I'm not saying don't go to the next thing because you need it to be equipped. But I'm saying that many times we somehow confuse activity with being awake. Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Sardis. I know your deeds. Guess what? They were getting it done. They were doing the stuff. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Wake up. And let me tell you, the church not, needs to not only wake up, the church needs to grow up. See, I don't preach here but a couple times a year now, so I can get away with this. <laughs> Some of you 
need a different set of problems. Come on. It's time to put away childish things. The writer of Hebrews said, by now, you've got enough word in you, you should be teachers. And yet, you're still on the milk. Some of you need to wake up. Some of you need to grow up. You know why? Because grown-ups reproduce. And there's going to be a unique aspect to this outpouring. Is that God is going to fall in places that we don't expect. Oh, this big ministry, this church, this 20 zillion likes. And, you know, we're postured and we're positioned and we got the media thing going on. And certainly God's going to fall here. Keep thinking that. God's never been impressed with any of it. This year, God took me to the book of Ezekiel. And we love getting to chapter 47. The river of God. Woo! We had an old song back in the vineyard day. Sets my feet a dancing. We love the river of God. Come on. And it's great. It's wonderful. There's life and the trees and fruit and all this kind of great stuff. But you got to go back and look at chapters 40 through 46. And what you see is an examination of something being built. God measuring, God looking and saying, is this a place of my architecture or just the grand schemes and machinations of human builders? Huh. We get all of these chapters leading up to 47. Amos 7, 7, a plumb line is being applied. God's coming to measure. And God is going to pour himself out in some unique places. My wife and I were at a conference in Europe some years ago. And I began to see lights begin to go on, kind of like twinkling Christmas lights. But it wasn't a lot of light at first. It was very sporadic and very individual where it was showing up. And I believe this is how this revival is going to begin to break out. Don't miss the day of visitation because... External circumstances don't align with your expectations. You see, theologically, eschatologically, we have this, what we call, it's called triumphalism. Its roots kind of go back into the 1980s. The moral majority, Reagan, Dobson, Shafley. And the idea is that we were going to have a Christianized society. Now listen to me. I believe that we are called to have influence in every aspect of the culture. But listen to me. It's done the old-fashioned way, one heart at a time. It's how it's done. If we want to influence structures, we've got to influence the people that make up those structures. And it's done individually. But we looked at we, we look at these structures being quote Christianized, and then we, we define that as revival. Part of the challenge of Christian nationalism is waiting for this institutional revival to qualify that revival is indeed among us. But what if we don't see institutional revival? 
Will we say, well, God's not doing a thing. Consider this. Pentecost. The birth of the church. Power, signs, wonders, the Holy Ghost. And yet Rome didn't change. We don't see that it had any impact on the governmental structures of the day. As a matter of fact, it was those same structures that continued to persecute and eventually scattered the church. My goodness. And yet, none of us would step back from the vantage point of history and say, that wasn't an outpouring. That wasn't revival. My goodness. So what we see has to shift. So what do we do? How do we prepare? How do we participate? You see, it's one thing to have expectation. It's another thing to have preparation. Because I believe it's with expectation and preparation, that's where the essence of faith lies. Many times we think just having expectation, I'm good to go, I've got faith. No, you don't. Unless there's some preparation that goes with it. Something that you, tangibly in your life or in our corporate structures that says we're willing to make space for God. 2 Kings 4, and I just can tell the story because I'm, I'm out of time. This widow of a prophet, she's broke. In those days, you didn't have chapter 7, 9, 11, whatever. They just came and got your kids and sold them into slavery. The prophet Elisha comes. She tells a story. He says, what do you have in your house? And her initial response was based on her condition. Everything she had been facing, nothing. Well, wait a minute. I do have a little oil. And the prophet says this. Go send your boys out of the house. Get every container you can find. Have him bring it, close the door, and begin to pour. And it says as she began to pour what little bit she had, God brought the miracle of multiplication. And the oil kept coming. And she said, give me another one. It kept coming. Give me another one. Finally, she asked that one more time. He said, we don't have any more. The oil stopped. Could I submit to you, I believe, if she could have continued to get enough containers that generationally, that oil would still be flowing today. The only reason the oil stopped is there was no more room for it to go. So stay with me. See, for many of us, we're running on empty. We have this phenomenon called FOMO. But I believe there's another one that's even more driving for our Western culture is FORO. The fear of running out. It's why God created Amazon Prime and Costco. <laughs> and so we begin to feel hunger and we immediately begin to rebuke the devil. We, get, we, we begin to feel a little bit empty. And I'm preaching this now instead of on Wednesday. But we begin to feel that as something foreign, something that's wrong. So we begin to rebuke the devourer. And yet, my Bible says, blessed are those who do what? Come on. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is the promise? They will be filled. And listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. God will empty you. He might use Satan to do it. There's a lot of theology behind what I just said. 
but he will empty you. And it will terrify you. He said, I don't believe it. It's called the book of Job. Have you considered my man Job? There ain't nobody like him. Yet I'm getting ready to wreck his life. I'm getting ready to empty him of absolutely everything that manifested his position. Manifested his understanding of who I was. Why? Because it was insufficient. And so for 40 some odd chapters, God wrecks the man's life. He empties him of everything he could possibly have. So that God in the end could simply say, now you know me. My goodness. Why is this? Simply because God doesn't compete. For attention, affection, or space. He doesn't do it. He just says, okay. You're full of YouTube. You're full of Instagram. You're full of kitty cat videos. You're full. It's okay. You're full. You're full. You're full. And so God just says, great. You're full. And we wonder, where is the flow and the oil of God in our life? God says, get empty. Huh. Let me tell you. Terrifying process. But it's absolutely prerequisite to what we're talking about. Are you fillable? What does your vessel look like? In 2019, I spoke a message on wineskins. And in doing some research on wineskins, of course, we know that they were taken from the skin of an animal. This is how they transported liquid in those days. And yet the thing about a wineskin is that it's at its maximum point of both flexibility and as a result capacity closest to the death of the animal from which it was taken. Do you realize our flexibility and our capacity is directly connected to our mortality? Oh my. So that we can expand. And God is looking for that not only in individuals. He's looking for that in churches. He's looking for that in corporate structures. Are you willing to die to your order of service, to your programs, to your neat growth tracks? Are you willing to let all of that die in order to contain that which I want to pour out? You can't rely on someone else's oil any longer. Drafting in their word, their relationship, their experience, whatever it might be. It's why we love running to the filling station. Woo, conference. Woo, podcast. Woo. Bishop Brett, he knows that word. And that young guy, he ain't bad either. So you know what? I'll just let them read their Bibles every day. And I'll draft in their knowledge a little bit. You can't borrow anybody else's oil. And some of you wonder, well, if you love me, you'd give me some of your oil. It doesn't work that way. You see, God's responsible for the oil. He's responsible for the fire that ignites the oil. You and I have to provide the container. That's up to you and to me. You can't draft in somebody else's. Well, you know, I'm just not getting fed here anymore. Seriously, dude? 
Really? Could I suggest to you the issue is not the word, it's not the pulpit, it's not the oil, it's not the structure of the local church. The problem might be your container. They didn't pay me to say that. And then you've got to recognize what you have. You've got to pour out what you got. It's recognizing it and releasing it. Well, I've just got a little. Fine. Because it's not until you take the little and you begin to pour out the little that the miracle of multiplication begins to occur. You see, we all want to withhold our offerings and our tithes and the movement of our gifts. And we want to withhold until we somehow begin to see the supply ahead of time. Let me just tell you, it ain't going to happen that way. It's when you take what you think is a little, you begin to pour it out that God then brings that miracle of multiplication. And listen to me. Here's a widow. The prophet said, sell the oil, pay off your debts, and live on what's left. We don't pay much attention to that last phrase much. Do you realize she went from financial health to wealth? Live on what's left. Do you realize that she no longer ever had a financial problem again? Because she was obedient to take what she had and do something with it according to the word of the Lord. Live on what's left. My goodness. And in the midst of inflations and Recessions and stagflations and whatever word they can create to scare us to death. There's a supernatural wealth, I believe, coming to individuals and churches who are prepared to receive. And for churches, I believe there are two containers. I'm closing with this, I promise. So we're used to long sermons. Love you. All right. (laughs) The first container is prayer. Because you see, prayer is that place that we primarily get empty if we're doing it right. Some people say, well, I don't pray because it doesn't work. No, it doesn't work because you're not praying right. You see, you go to God with your list and ask him to punch it. No, Affirm my list. And yet, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done. Do you know what's prerequisite to that? You got to pour your will out. You got to pour yourself. You got to get empty. This is the very essence of what prayer is. It's finding out how empty we can get to find out how full we can get. This is how prayer works. The prophet gave that widow a command and closed the door. Listen, I appreciate corporate gatherings. You should come Friday night. But the real work of a wineskin is done behind closed doors. It's done privately. Nobody sees it. Nobody can say, ooh, nice prayer. Hercules, Hercules. No. 
that you don't get any acclamations for praying loud and praying long. It's what you do behind that closed door. And then the second is getting out of the house and looking for empty containers. Send your boys out. We know there are not enough containers in your house to begin to contain that which I want to do. You know what it speaks of? Evangelism. Disciple making. Go find as many empty containers as you can find. You know what to do? You got to get out of the house to go find those containers. You got to get out of Grace Covenant Church. You got to get out of this seat. You got to do something beyond Sundays. If you want to be that wineskin that you, well, I don't know how to evangelize. I, I don't, I can't even find the book of, of first opinions. I don't even, I, I don't know what I would say. Tell your story. Open your mouth. Pour out your oil. And watch what God does. out of the house. So the question is simple, church. Survival or revival? And that's a question that you're going to have to ask. Things in the world are not going to get measurably better. Things in the kingdom are about to get glorious. Please don't confuse the two. And for you, it's going to be a question of whose kingdom am I going to reside in? Which one? I believe that God has poised us for an amazing moment. But it comes down to this. Your wineskin. Are you dead enough yet? Are you flexible enough yet to contain that which is about to pour out. Pray with me. Lord, help us this morning. We can't begin to do that which we just heard. Can't do it. We can't die to self. We don't know how to empty ourselves. We're so full of ourselves, we don't even know where to start. But Lord, we want what we're hearing. We're desperate. We're hungry. We're thirsty. And your promise is clearly inscripturated that we would be filled. So fill us. Fill us. Fill us. Your presence, your word, your spirit, your power, your glory. God, do it for us individually. Do it with our kids. God, do it in our workplace. God, do it in the church. Every corner of society, we're asking this revival would get to. But Lord, we're asking right now, for those of us hearing, start with us. Use us.